0: And let us exalt His name together. You see, Scripture is admonishing and encouraging us to find our strength in God, to find our strength in His power. Culture is saying, absolutely not. God is small. You're the one that's big. You're the one that has the power. You have the strength. You have the resources, the energy, the dynamic within you to be able to achieve all that it is you want to achieve. Diminish the God, you get big. The psalmist says no. But the task of human beings... The work of a human being every day is to magnify. That is, to make large God in our hearts in the middle of a culture that's trying to shrink Him down. Part of the daily discipleship regimen is just enlarging Him. Getting God big and vast and immense and profound in order to dwarf the challenges of the day. It's learning the truth that we are taught in a children's hymn. Our God is so what? big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. Do we believe that? The point is this. Disciples have to put away the shrunken God. And this is where the story of Gideon becomes relevant. As the story begins, you know, the, the Midianites are terrorizing Israel. They are bent on destroying the economy and bringing Israel to her knees, They're not just wanting to wield power. They're wanting to suck the energy out of Israel, try to bring it to collapse. And Israel is pretty close to that collapse. The people are living in caves. They're living in the clefts and the rocks. And in verse 11, Gideon, who is uh, the, the hero of our story, is in a wine press, but he's not making wine. What he's doing is threshing grain. He's in that wine press trying to hide from the Midianites, the food he's trying to salvage to save his family. And while he's down there, you know what he's doing? He's thinking about what the prophet has said. You'll remember that there is this cycle where the people go into idolatry. The Lord gets mad. He delivers them into the hands of of, of an oppressor. They begin to struggle and they begin to suffer. And in anguish, they cry out to God. God hears them and saves them and shows himself to be beautiful again. And again and again and again. That's the cycle throughout Judges. Except this time, at the beginning of chapter 6, he sends a prophet. He says, Do you not remember who it is? It's not God who is like all of these other idols. It is God who brought you in love out of Egypt in the Exodus. The prophet says, It was I who brought you, speaking for God, the God of Israel, who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from slavery, I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians. And from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. It's about this time the angel of the Lord comes and sits under the oak of Ophrah and watches Gideon. And then he appears to Gideon. And he says in verse 12, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon responds with, I beg your pardon. Verse 13, "Pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us?" And here we find one of the main issues that Gideon is struggling with, and that we struggle with Gideon as well, interpreting God wrongly. The reason Gideon is interpreting God wrongly is because he's asking two of the the, the wrong questions. The first wrong question that he is asking is, why has God left us? God is living, or or excuse me, Gideon is living in a world where God has been shrunk down. God, in his mind, his way of thinking about God is, is far off. God is far away and Gideon is having to do life on his own. Therefore, Gideon's life is shrinking before his very eyes. And there's sort of a correlation here that my life is small, therefore God must be small. And he's just now trying to survive the Midianites. What he should be asking, the right question is, what in the world is God doing right now? What is God doing? How is God, God's uh, person intersecting my life? How is God intervening in history? What is God doing in the history of the world and in my experience right now in the experience of Israel? He thinks what God has done has Abandon his people. But it's not true. As, as the prophet has already said, God has put them in the hands of the Midianites to bring them to repentance and to destroy the idols that are not just in the land, but in their hearts. Which brings up the second wrong question that Gideon asks, and that is, why isn't God removing the problems? You hear this in, in Gideon's voice. God, where are the miracles? If God is with us, where are the miracles? Where's the deliverance? You see, he's thinking about what the prophet has said. But he's thinking about it in the wrong way. He's asking the wrong question. Why isn't God removing the problems? Where are the miracles and deliverance now? Gideon doesn't believe what he's been told. That you are a mighty warrior. So the second right question he should have asked is, how is God going to make me capable to live in faith through this? How is God going to make me, as a person of faith, a person of trust, a person of obedience, a person who knows God, a person of the covenant, a person of the people of God, how is He going to make me capable to live in faith through this kind of an ordeal? And it's here that the conversation between the angel of the Lord and Gideon reminds us of another conversation in the Old Testament. It involves God and a man that He would send to save His people. Moses. Moses too has trouble with the commission that God has given him. I can't speak. I'm not that great. Who are you? I don't... And finally he says, I don't want to go. The angel of the Lord says to Gideon, You are to go. Gideon is having a hard time discerning God's voice, discerning God's message, discerning God's intent. Which is the problem of Israel at this point. They're having trouble discerning what it is that God is trying to do and trying to teach and trying to instruct and point them towards. Gideon has a hard time because he sees himself small. He says, I can't do it because my clan is the smallest. Has anybody here heard of the Abzirites? The pages of the Bible are not eaten up with him. He's speaking the truth. It's a small clan. Not very well known. Not heard of by many people. But on top of that, he says, you know, God, my clan is the smallest and I'm the least in the clan. Gideon subconsciously is equating God's power with his own smallness and weakness. His eyes are his vision too much on himself. And you know, the funny thing is that God did not say, you know, I want you to do this thing based on your good looks and your charm. I don't want you to do this because you have these special talents and these special gifts because your special power that is inside of you that's going to enable you to achieve anything is equal to the task. He does not say that. That is not what God says. Twice, God tells Gideon that he will do it. Why? Number one, verse 14. Am I not sending you? And then two verses later, verse 16, I will be with you. That's where he begins to interpret God wrongly. That I'm doing it on my own. I'm doing it by myself. That God, He's equating His own smallness and weakness with God's distance. You know, I've told you the story before about 40 years ago when I was in middle school. There was a, a kid... In the 8th grade, we were all 8th graders at the time, he just aggravated and annoyed everyone. I mean, you couldn't walk down the hall without this guy tripping somebody, flipping their books, you know, making fun of them, just you know, shooting. I mean, 40 years ago, people were still shooting spitballs at each other in a class, and this guy was, was, was a sniper. And finally, he had crossed the line. I mean, this is a kid that had grown up there all his life, I mean, through kindergarten elementary school, now the end of middle school. He had finally crossed the line, and one of the kids said that he was going to beat the pest. He was going to fight that pest after school. Well, this kid was not popular. He had maybe one friend in the entire school, and by the end of the day, everyone in school had heard about the fact that this kid was going to beat up the pest, and everybody wanted to watch that fight. Everybody had a stake in that action. Well, Richard got wind of the mob that was going to show up and watch... And as soon as the bell rang for him to be able to leave and go home, that guy began to run. And the next thing you know nearly every kid in that school is chasing him down as he's running through the streets of Bowie, Maryland, and he finally makes it to his house, gets up on the porch, opens the door, slams it, just as that mob of about 200 kids rises, you know, uh, arrives at his house and gets there on that, that front porch in that, that yard. And they're all yelling at him. I'm at my friend's house across the street, and we walk out and say, what in the world? And we see all of these people that we are growing up with and we knew wanting to fight Richard. And they're out on the street and they're yelling at him and Richard's inside of the house and he's not coming out and mom's looking out the window. About five minutes later we hear the rev of a big fury, Plymouth Fury, come roaring around the corner, and it's the dad. He called the dad and said, I don't know what's going on, but there's about two hundred kids in our front yard that are wanting to beat up your son. You need to get home. He's flying home. He come you know, and as soon as the kids recognize the car, they're dispersing like somebody had thrown tear gas. Except for the kid that wanted to fight him. And the car comes screeching to a halt. The father jumps out and and all the kids are backing off of the house now. And he walks up to the kid and he says, what in the world is going on? And the kid explains to him what is happening. And he says, I I just want to fight him. So the old man goes back into the house, closes the door. About 30 seconds later, he comes out and Richard's following him. And he says, sometimes, and whether you agree with this, I mean, his parenting in the 70s. It was a very permissive age. He says, this isn't going to be a fair fight. 200 against one's not fair, but one on one is fair. And he turned to Richard and said, you're going to have to deal with this. But I'm going to be here, right here beside you, to make sure that it's a fair fight. And the next thing you know, Richard puts up his fist. The other kid puts up his fist. They circled each other. Then the kid that wanted to fight him dropped his hand and said, nah, I don't want to do this. And I walked away with a new vision of dads. It was one of the most amazing dad things I had ever seen in my life. The thing that I walked away from is fathers can make you brave. Fathers can make you brave. This kid was willing to do what he was scared to do because he was outnumbered. Because he was by far not even close to the size of most of the kids that were out there on his, on his front lawn. But this kid was willing to do what he was scared to do because he had a great big father standing beside him. And literally and physically, he knew that he was not alone. And that as long as his father was there, he was going to be up to the challenge. Which brings us to a really important part of our daily walk with God, and that is making sure that we envision God rightly. God is our Father who makes us brave. Here's the question, if you were convinced that God was colossal and He was present with you, and that He had your best interests at heart, that He was there physically, spiritually, He was with you, how would you live your life? Now this is what Gideon is doing. His eyes are beginning to open to the fact that God is with him literally. Literally. He says, he says to the angel of the Lord, he says, if, if, it, if it's you, if it's really you, if it's really you that's talking to me, please do not go away. Let me go and, and I'll come back. Stay here until I bring an offering to you. And the writer of Judges says, you know what Gideon did? He went and he prepared this young goat, which took a while, and he he fixed about a half a bushel of, of bread without leaven, and there's this big pot of broth, and he set this banquet before the angel of the Lord, and you know what the angel of the Lord did with it? He takes his staff and touches the rock that it's sitting on, and this flame erupts and consumes everything, and then the angel disappears. And Gideon knows that he is truly and physically and literally in the presence of God and fears that the all-consumer, overarching, without limited power of God is going to destroy him. What's happening to Gideon is he's beginning to see the vast greatness of God. God's beginning to be magnified in in his mind. God is beginning to get big. And He builds an altar to God and He calls it the Lord is peace. We'll talk about that in a minute. I think it's also important to see that what it is that God calls Gideon to do that very day is, is, is linked to this as well. He's asking Gideon, telling Gideon, commanding Gideon to go and to fight the Midianites. But he has such a small view of God and a small view of himself that he has to be processed to grow in faith. And God sends Gideon to tear down the altar to the Baal and the Asherah poles that are in the town. And not only to tear it down, but to build a proper altar to the Lord. And he says, I want you to go to your father's herd. I want you to take his second bull, the one that's seven years old, and I want you to sacrifice it on that new and never been used before altar to Yahweh, to God, using the wood of the Asherah pole to burn that sacrifice. Now, one of the reasons he's doing this is that the worship of Baal, of Baal, and of Asherah is killing Israel. The idols are killing Israel. The idols are oppressing Israel and causing anguish and suffering and sorrow and heart sickness. The worship of the idols, killing it's killing Israel. There were no virtues in, in the worship of, of the idols of that day like uh, holiness, no fruit of the Spirit, there's no justness. There's no righteousness to it. Baal is destroying lives. And it has to end. But if it's going to end in Israel, it's got to first end in the heart of Gideon. And up to this point, Gideon was okay with living with the idols because God was like this. But as God begins to get bigger and bigger and bigger in his heart, he begins to understand God and know God and sense God and 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 to 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 be in awe of God, and to stand back in 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 reverence and fear of God. All of a sudden, he sees that the idols are toxins. The idols are toxic to his soul. And all of this has to end. And this was not an altar that was built by the Midianites. That's where the irony in all of this is. It was built by the Israelites who had the covenant with God and had the Decalogue. Ironically, the one in question that he's about to tear down was built by his own father. But regardless of that fact, the idols have to go. Which brings us to kind of the last thought tonight, which is, you know, the removing of idols. It's not something that you just waste time doing uh, removing of the idols is something that's done immediately before Gideon can move on he has he has to deal with this it's it's the trigger for all of the downward spiritual cycles that we have seen thus far in the book it, it's people becoming distracted in the way that they think about God and in the way they think about God uh, being detrimental and and deviating of the way that they respond and live with God to the place where the idol has a bigger place in their heart than God the creator of the universe the One who saved them out of His love and compassion, delivered them from their slavery to Egypt. It's the idol that has the preeminent spot. It's interesting that God is taking Gideon back to the very first commandment. Which is to get rid of idols. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. The reason that this is the first of the Ten Commandments is because this commandment is foundational to everything else. You don't get life right if you don't get this commandment right. And when we don't get it right, it becomes the main thing that's wrong with us. I mean, for example, what happens, and this is a simple illustration, what happens when work becomes your identity? When work becomes the thing that gives you identity, that gives you worth, that gives you whatever it is, that dynamic, that power, that strength, that in reality you feel like you've got to have to be able to move on. Well, it means that every day you go to work and you have something to prove. Because you have something to prove. That explains why there's such a drivenness that gets your life out of balance and gets your life out of kilter most of the time when work becomes that idle, You're nothing until you get promoted. You're nothing until you're recognized. And if you're not recognized, then your heart is broken because that's where your heart is. Now, I don't know why Gideon tolerated the idols at at his house. Maybe he loved his dad and couldn't bear the thought of of making his his father angry or hurting his father's feelings. And the thought of losing that love or losing that relationship was just too much, maybe. Or maybe he was really just uh, not very much a valiant warrior at all. And maybe he was afraid to take a stand. Afraid to lose some personal security if he stood up and said, this is an idol, that is an abomination to God. I don't really know, but I find it interesting that when he is afraid that he is going to die, I mean, in just about every movie where somebody is afraid that they're going to die, what is it that the person says to them that the doctor or whoever it might be, what is it that they say to them? You're not going to die. Stay with me. You're not going to die. I'm I'm going to die. You're not going to die. He says, I think I'm about to die. I have seen, you know, the angel of the Lord. I'm about to die. And what is it that, that the angel says to him? Peace is what he says to him. Peace. It's the thing he needs to hear. It's 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 strange because it's not what we expect. But it's what the Lord through the angel is going to say to Gideon peace. It's kind of like in Mark chapter two when Jesus is teaching there in Capernaum one night and there's a paralytic with four friends and they take the friend to see Jesus, to get him healed, but they can't get in the, the conventional way, so they take him up on the roof, peel back the earth, and drop him down in front of Jesus. And everybody expects him to say to the paralytic, the one who has a reputation for healing people, that he's going to say, get up and take your mat and walk. But that's not what he says, because he says to him what he really needs, which is, your sins are forgiven. And all of those Pharisees begin to freak because who in the world can forgive sins except God? And because Jesus is God, he discerns what's in their heart. And knowing what's in their heart, he says, Which do you think is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to get up and take your mat and walk? But that you might know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, he turns to the guy and says, Get up and walk. Gideon thinks he's about to die. The message he gets is the message that he needs. And that is peace. Because one of the really, really big things that an idol can never give you is peace. Only God can give you peace. And that is why Gideon sort of comes to his senses a little bit and the angel of the Lord says, peace, peace, don't be afraid. Because that's really what Gideon is dealing with, is fear. That's the reason he's in the wine press, not doing the wine thing, making wine, but he's in there threshing the grain, which is the worst place ever to thresh grain. But he's doing it because he's afraid. He's doing it because his life is under siege. There is no peace in Gideon's life. The Midianites are making sure of that. And he is not living courageously. He's not living as if God physically and literally and spiritually is right there beside him. He's living in fear. He has, he has not even a, a whiff of peace in his life. The security, the peace that comes in knowing that God is right there beside you. But that's what the angel says. Peace. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And Gideon says, you know what? That's about the best thing I've ever heard. And he builds an altar to that place. And what does he call it? The Lord is what? Peace. You know, that's one thing that the idol can never give you. The idol will never give you peace. The idol will break your heart. The idol will always disappoint you. The idol will enslave you in ways that you would not even notice it until it's too late and you're being dashed against the floor. The idol's... That usurp the place of God. That the idols that lie, the idols that, that are a mirage of, of 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 pleasure and of and of and of that peace will never, ever, ever satisfy. They will drain your life, they will make you small, and in the end they will destroy you. And that is not a life of peace. That is not a life of peace. What God offers is not only to help you to take those idols out of your heart, but to put a peace that passes understanding in its place. Because it's Him. Because He is the one King who will never enslave you. He is the one King who doesn't demand that you die for Him, but will die for you. He is the King that loves you, that He is willing to sacrifice everything in order for you to be His joy. He is the King that will love you and turn you into the human being that you were always intended to be. He will turn you into a person that that you will flower and you will flourish and you will blossom in places where you never knew that you had buds. And this is the key in Philippians chapter 4 when... When Paul is writing to that church in Philippi that's kind of struggling and there are two women and their issues with one another have kind of wicked out into everybody else and everybody else is up in arms. He says, you know what? Here's the thing you need to think about. You need to rejoice and remember this. The Lord is near. And what does he say one verse later? The Lord is near and He gives the peace that passes understanding. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now, and maybe there are some ways that our church might minister to you tonight. Help you find that peace. Help you deal with the idols in your heart. Help you find God in real, meaningful, significant ways as, 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 as the God of the universe who is vast and large and profound and in charge of everything, but also knows the number of hairs that are on your head. That's God. Who can order names for all of the stars? And as Isaiah says, not one of the stars is ever lost. But God also knows you in the in the micro world of creation so intimately that He knows the number of hairs on your head. And you know that gives me a, a tremendous amount of satisfaction knowing that God is so intimate with me that that number's changing every day. But He knows. He knows. And if our church can minister to you tonight in any way, come to the front and talk to our shepherds, our spiritual leaders, as the rest of us stand and praise this God together. Let's stand and sing.
1: I cry out for your hand of mercy to heal me. I am weak and I need your love to free me. Oh, Lord, my rock, my strength, in weakness, come rescue me, O oh Lord. You are my hope, your promise never fails me, and my desire is to follow you forever. For you are good, for you are good. For you are good to me, for you are good.